Welcome to Policy for the People, a show that explores the public policies that can lift up all Oregonians. This show is a collaboration between KMUZ Radio and the Oregon Center for Public Policy. I am your host, Juan Carlos Ordonez. Today on Policy for the People, we examine how reproductive justice is economic justice and how the U.S. Supreme Court's decision ending the constitutional right to abortion threatens economic harm to many. One in four minimum wage workers in Oregon is a parent. In our second segment, we discuss the minimum wage increase that just went into effect here in Oregon and how far our minimum wage remains from being a living wage. Stay tuned. Your home and how you pay the bills. That's the meaning of economy in ancient Greek. Being able to manage your home depends at a fundamental level on your ability to decide if and when to be pregnant, start a family, or expand a family. Having a child has long-term consequences on your ability to earn a living, the ability to continue your education, stay employed, or pursue a career. Having a child also takes resources. It takes money to feed, shelter, and care for that child. Abortion rights are economic rights, says Asha Banerjee. Asha is an economic analyst at the Economic Policy Institute. I spoke with Asha the day before the U.S. Supreme Court issued its final ruling on the Dobbs versus Jackson's women's health case, the ruling that overturned Roe versus Wade, and in doing so, threw out nearly 50 years of constitutional law recognizing a right to abortion. Thanks to state law, people in Oregon still have legal access to abortion. But for the nation as a whole, the Dobbs ruling pretends deep economic harm, says Asha. We discussed specific language that appeared in the draft opinion of Dobbs leaked back in May. That language, written by Justice Alito, remains in the final opinion. Hello, Asha. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. So let's begin by examining one of the things that Justice Alito says in his draft opinion in the Dobbs versus Jackson case. Justice Alito writes that there is a, quote, empirical question that is hard for anyone, and in particular a court, to assess, namely the effect of abortion right on society, and in particular on the lives of women, unquote. So Justice Alito basically says that we just don't know how the right to abortion impacts the well-being of women in society, and then he moves on. But that's not correct. We do know a lot about the answer to the question of how access to abortion impacts society and people who can get pregnant, correct? The statement that we cannot answer this empirical question of how you know, the right to abortion affects women and you know, society in general, that is just incorrect. This empirical question has long been assessed and answered in a very rich, rigorous social science literature. There was an amicus brief filed on behalf of economists in the Dobbs case. And, you know, that is really well written. And I think it makes the point really well that actually empirically, we can answer this question very clearly. This research, you know, which spans, you know, economics, sociology, public health, all sorts of experts, this research does pretty clearly show how access to abortion really, really does impact people's lives and their livelihoods and society as a whole. I imagine this research goes back quite a while, some, some decades. Uh, is that correct? Oh, absolutely, because there are papers which have looked at 
you know, states pre Roe v. Wade and states after. Um, so right after the legislation has happened and what economic outcomes look like before and after. And, you know, other papers have done the same with very ris um, extreme restrictions looking both before and after. And, you know, unfortunately, I think we'll we'll be doing more of that in the future. So what does the research show? How does the right to abortion impact the well-being of women and others who can become pregnant? The research shows both the economic consequences of being denied an abortion, and the research also shows you know, the flip side, the positive benefits of having access to abortion. Starting with the positive benefits is interesting because this notion that access to abortion can have positive benefits, I think is quite a powerful argument. The idea that access to abortion can help boost economic well-being and that abortion access is deeply connected to things like economic mobility, independence, economic and financial security, which you know, also factors into you know, intergenerational security as well. And you know, research has shown, to answer your question, that in environments where abortion is legal and accessible, you know, there are lower rates of you know, teen first births and marriages. There is reduced rates of maternal mortality. There's increased rates of educational attainment. A paper looked at states where abortion was legal before Roe v. Wade and found that you know, women who got an abortion to delay an unplanned pregnancy for just one year had an 11% increase in hourly wages. Um, another paper by Kelly Jones found that legal abortion for pregnant women increased their likelihood of entering a professional occupation by 35 percentage points. So, you know, these numbers are huge. And so all of these things, you know, um, going to college, going into a higher paying job, you know, earning higher wages, all of this factors into economic well-being and mobility. And, um, you know, Janet Yellen said something recently, the ability to choose whether and when to have children, you know, at what point in your life, when you're you know, financially, economically, you know, physically, emotionally, psychologically ready, all of that is key to economic security and freedom. And that is back, backed up pretty significantly by the research as well. For a person who is denied an abortion and is forced to carry the birth to term, is there evidence on how much more likely they are to and their child to end up living in poverty? So now the flip side, talking about the consequences of being denied an abortion, uh, the research strongly shows that there are many detrimental economic effects of abortion bans and restrictions. And yes, this does include a higher chance of being in poverty, you know, even four years later. So just to think that this impact lasts for years, some research which is based off of studies which look at both women who were denied an abortion and who were allowed to receive the procedure, there is an increase in unpaid debts, bankruptcies, evictions, just a really significant increase in financial distress. And again, lasting for years. This has implications beyond just the present. You know, if you're trapped in a low paying occupation, perhaps you're really young and you don't go to college and you drop out of the labor force or you're stuck in a low wage job. You know, we, we, the economic research also is pretty, it says a lot about, you know, cycles of poverty and how this continues for generations and generations. So you already touched on this a little bit, but how does deny, being denied an abortion affect a person's ability to stay employed? And abortion is often framed as this quote unquote culture war issue. But actually, when you look at the research, abortion access is deeply connected to jobs and the economy. You know, abortion restrictions and um, bans, these curtail which jobs women get. 
This means that women have to take time out of the workforce, receiving less education. And all of this hurts women's pay, which is already lower on average than men's pay. And women already face sort of that financial hit for taking time out of the labor force to have children. And so when you add this on top of, you know, extremely young women or economically vulnerable women having this happen to them, it's like an additional ec economic blow. Lack of abortion access leads to women staying in lower paying occupations. You know, this has really major um, economic implications. This can lead to more occupational segregation. So where women and especially black and Hispanic and indigenous women are overrepresented in, you know, very low paying, low wage fields. And, you know, this continues to depress wages in those fields as a whole. It just really traps women in this like cycle of poverty. That sort of segues into another question that I had, which is whether the denial of access to abortion impacts particular demographic groups more than others. I'm wondering if you can comment on that. I think it's really important to see this issue in a larger economic context, and specifically the 26 states which are likely to ban abortion first. You know, these are states which either have, you know, trigger, ba trigger bans on the books. So as soon as the Supreme Court decision comes through, those will go into effect. These are also states which have bans which existed before Roe v. Wade, which at some point might go into effect, and states which have you know, legislation on the books. And what we can see from looking at those specific states is that it absolutely is low and middle income women, women especially who work in low wage jobs, as well as black, Hispanic and other women of color who will feel these impacts first. And in a lot of these states, you know, these populations are the same. Black and Hispanic women are, you know, overrepresented in low wage work. And you know, there's a long history of labor market discrimination, which you know, interacts in a pretty horrible way with racism and sexism, which has already trapped so many Black, Hispanic, and other women of color in these low-wage jobs. And so absolutely, when these bans come through, um, I think it is these women who will feel the impact first. You know, many women cannot take time off of work. These are jobs which do not have paid leave, good access to health care, things like that. And many of the laws on the books which might criminalize traveling, which have basically made distances to get an abortion, you know, multiply, increase by several orders of magnitude, these women might not be able to afford the travel or, you know, the costs of taking the time off for that travel. And I think what's also important is that these 26 states likely to ban abortion after the decision already have this economic architecture of lower wages, you know, barely funded public services, reduced access to health care, Many of these states have not expanded Medicaid. You know, there's little worker power. There's higher incarceration rates. There's a severe lack of paid leave. Um, so what I'm getting at is that there will be a disproportionate impact because this, the Supreme Court decision and you know, abortion ban legislation, this is hitting first in the states which have already made it as economically difficult as possible to support oneself, let alone carry out a pregnancy and raise a child. We're taking this short break to invite you to subscribe to our show for free. Follow Policy for the People on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, give us a rating. It really helps others find the show. And now, back to the show. Opponents of Roe versus Wade, uh, as Justice Alito's draft opinion notes, minimize the economic impact of taking away the right to abortion by arguing that, quote, 
federal and state laws ban discrimination on the basis of pregnancy, that leave for pregnancy and childbirth are now guaranteed by law in many cases, and that the cost of, of medical care associated with pregnancy are covered by insurance or government assistance, unquote. In other words, uh, he's saying that opponents of abortion rights argue that there's no problem here because uh, we have all these laws and programs protecting people during pregnancy. But that argument ignores reality, right? Oh, good. Where to even begin with this? Um, yes, this argument is not at all based in the current economic reality. You know, every piece of that argument is wildly misleading to sort of take it from the top. Um, women are still routinely fired for being pregnant. Close to nine in 10 workers did not have paid leave in 2020. You know, the costs of maternity care with insurance have risen very sharply and, you know, form a very serious economic burden, even for middle-income families, forget families or households with low-wage jobs. And many of these states, you know, certain or unlikely to ban abortion, even after the fall of Roe v. Wade, have not expanded Medicaid. So this leaves women without insurance facing very, very steep costs, particularly in the immediate um, postpartum period. And of course, you know, this conversation is, you know, we can't fail to mention that our absolutely failed healthcare system often imposes the, you know, the ultimate cost of all on pregnant women. And that is that the US rate of maternal mortality, especially for black women, ranks absolutely last among similarly wealthy countries. So in short, there are extreme costs to bearing a child, let alone raising a child. And these costs are very high. Having a child is one of the most important economic decisions one will make. And you know, it's women and other people who become pregnant who should decide when and if they wish to shoulder these burdens. And even beyond just the period of pregnancy and giving birth, our country has a pretty threadbare safety net when it comes to parenting. There's no universal system of childcare. We just ended the enhanced child tax credit for families. The country just doesn't offer a lot of support to parents, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, that's why this issue it is such an economic issue because in one sense, it sort of takes the failures of a bunch of different systems, you know, our failed healthcare system, which disproportionately impacts, um, you know, black and brown women and especially women who work in low wage jobs. So it's, a, you know, this horrible interaction of our failed healthcare system, our absolutely failed social safety net system. And again, these are all concentrated in the states where this will fall first. And you're absolutely right. There's very little support. You know, programs like Women, Infant, and Children's or TANF or other programs meant for, for women or those with very low incomes have been absolutely slashed in the last decades. So it's essentially forcing women to carry out potentially unwanted pregnancies without any sort of social safety net in system. It's a, it's a very cruel you know, economic landscape that this is all happening in. Asha, are there any final thoughts you wanted to share with us regarding the economic impact on the lives of women and pregnant people resulting from ending the constitutional right to abortion? First, you know, people fighting for this issue or on behalf of people whom this issue is going to affect absolutely need to start treating this like a serious economic catastrophe, you know, not a sideline culture war issue. And taking away the ability to decide whether or when to have children can and does hinders 
women's economic and professional lives. So this, considering that this issue is going to impact or has the potential to impact over half of the, you know, the labor force, the workforce, and the population as a whole, people absolutely need to be treating this issue as you know, a very serious economic issue. And you know, when talking about the economics of abortion, I always I sort of worry that talking in just economic terms sort of reduces this to you know dollars and cents and you know spreadsheets and all of that. But actually, I think the economic case really points to the humanity and the the heart of this issue in that taking away access to abortion and abortion rights takes away women's autonomy, their dignity, and the freedom to exert their own choices in the economy. That is what this argument is about. It is about protecting women's independence, their humanity, you know, their dignity. And this is all linked to abortion access. Well, Asha, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great conversation. That was Asha Banerjee of the Economic Policy Institute discussing why abortion rights are economic rights. And now on to our segment on Oregon's minimum wage, which went up at the start of this month. We're going to begin in 1913. That year, Oregon became the first state in the nation to establish an effective minimum wage. For the movement that pushed for the law, the aim was always a living wage. Not long after the minimum wage came into being, Edwin O'Hara, the chair of the state agency in charge of implementing the minimum wage, published a pamphlet titled A Living Wage by Legislation, The Oregon Experience. O'Hara wrote, quote, The general thesis is that the state has a duty to prevent any large section of its people from falling below decent standards of living. This July, Oregon's minimum wage went up. That's good news. The bad news is that the state's minimum wage remains far from the goal of ensuring a living wage. I discussed the minimum wage increase and its implications with my colleague from the Oregon Center for Public Policy, Tyler McInnes. Tyler is a policy analyst with the center. So Tyler, Oregon's minimum wage went up at the start of this month. And our state's minimum wage is a bit more complicated than it is in other states. Can you give us a quick explanation of how Oregon's minimum wage is structured, how it, how it works? Sure. So in 2016, Oregon lawmakers passed a law to raise the state's minimum wage. Prior to this law going into effect, uh, the statewide minimum wage was $9.25. So in, in creating this new wage structure, they created three minimum wage tiers to try and account for differences in costs of living across the state. So those tiers are the Portland metro area, other counties with denser urban areas, think of places like Salem or Bend, and rural counties make up the rest of the state. So the law laid out how the minimum wage would increase in each of those areas between 2016 and 2022. So the, the final increase of that, uh, of that law happened earlier this month. And as a result, the minimum wage now stands at 1475 in the Portland metro area, 1350 in those other urban parts of the state, and 1250 in rural counties. And do we know how many workers got a pay raise because of the minimum wage increase uh, that just took effect? Roughly, yes. So according to the most recent data that we have available from the Oregon Employment Department, there were about 108,000 jobs in Oregon that paid at or below the state minimum wage last year. 
So that accounts for a little bit more than 5% of all jobs in the state. Uh, and we know that Oregonians working these jobs are sure to see an increase from this most recent bump. We also know that any Oregonian who was earning just a little bit above the minimum wage last year, but less than what this new increase is raising wages to, will also see a pay raise. So as a result, more than 108,000 jobs in Oregon will see an increase as a result from this most recent bump. And what do we know about the folks who earn the minimum wage? Can you describe the characteristics of minimum wage workers? Sure. And I'm, I'm glad you asked this question since there are often myths about who minimum wage workers are. For instance, you often hear, oh, they're mostly teenagers working jobs during high school. They're, they're part-time jobs that aren't meant to support a family, et cetera, et cetera. That's not the case when it comes to minimum wage jobs. The reality is that more than half of Oregon's minimum wage workers are full-time workers. They're overwhelmingly adults. Less than 10% of minimum wage workers are teenagers. Uh, we know that one in four Oregon minimum wage workers is a parent. More than half of minimum wage workers in our state are women. And minimum wage workers are disproportionately Black, Indigenous, and other Oregonians of color. So when we talk about raising wages, raising the minimum wage in particular, it's important to note that we're really talking about boosting wages for uh, all sorts of Oregonians across our state. Over the past year, inflation has been ratcheting up. The cost of everyday essentials like food and gas have been going up and putting pressure on the family budgets. How does the minimum wage increase that just took effect compare to the increase in the cost of living over the past year? In other words, have workers gained or lost ground over the past year? It's certainly true that inflation has run higher over the past year than many workers have seen in their lifetimes. You know, we've seen annual inflation rates of more than 8%. And this most recent increase in the state minimum wage is somewhere between 4 and 6% in nominal terms, depending on where in Oregon a worker lives. In real or inflation-adjusted terms, over the last year, minimum wage workers have actually lost some ground in terms of the record high inflation that we've seen. That said, I think it is important to note that over the span of the six years in which this minimum wage increase has been rolled out, the prescribed increases in the minimum wage laid out in the law have actually outpaced inflation. And that speaks to the positive impacts that the minimum wage can have for people's lives. So we've seen in real terms, we've seen wage increases somewhere between seven and 26% or so, just depending on where in the state a worker lives. So low paid workers are certainly in a better position today than they would otherwise have been had lawmakers not acted in 2016. And I'm wondering how much increasing from 925 to the present level today, what that means in just, just pure dollar terms for a worker. To give you an example, let's say a worker in Salem, for instance, um, who was earning 925 in 2016 before this law went into effect. Um, a full-time worker earning the minimum wage in Salem today is earning nearly $9,000 per year more than they would have in 2016. In terms of the cost of living and making ends meet, I'm wondering how Oregon's minimum wage stacks up specifically to the ability of workers to pay the bills and take care of their families. 
So for most workers, a minimum wage job is insufficient to make ends meet. And that's the, that's the truth of it. Between the rising costs of housing, childcare, food, you name it, uh, earning between $12.50 and $14.75 an hour just isn't enough to get by. We know that pre-pandemic, more than two in five Oregonians earned less than what it cost to meet their basic needs. So that's according to an analysis by the United Way, which estimates what a family would need to survive. So to give you an example, that same analysis found that a single mother with a child would need to earn nearly $20 an hour just to meet her basic needs and the basic needs of her child. And again, that's based on pre-pandemic figures. So that doesn't account for the rising costs of living that we've seen in recent years. So all that is to say the minimum wage law passed in 2016, it has been a net positive in many ways to ensure that the lowest paid workers in our state are able to gain some ground, but those jobs are still a long ways off from paying a livable wage. The minimum wage increase that took effect on July 1 is, is the last one that was put in motion by the law enacted in 2016. Uh, what happens now? What happens going forward with respect to Oregon's minimum wage? So going forward, the minimum wage will roughly be adjusted for inflation year over year. So the wage in those urban counties I mentioned earlier, those are the ones outside the Portland metro area. That's considered kind of the standard wage tier in the law. That wage will be adjusted annually for inflation. The Portland metro area's wage will be $1.25 higher than whatever that inflation adjusted wage in other urban counties is determined to be. And the minimum wage for rural counties will be a dollar less than what, whatever that inflation adjusted wage is determined to be. So pegging wages to inflation is a, a positive thing. It ensures that workers don't lose ground over time. But minimum wage workers who have lost ground in real terms over the last year with record inflation, they'll have to wait until July of 2023 to see any increases as a result of this inflationary moment that we're in. So that tie to inflation does little to help those low-paid workers who are struggling to make ends meet today. So maybe the way to summarize it would be that with the law that was enacted in 2016, Oregon actually made progress in moving the minimum wage a little bit closer to a living wage. But going forward, we are going to be holding the line in terms of not falling back because we're tied to inflation, but we're not making any further progress in narrowing that gap between the minimum wage and, and a living wage. Is that, does that seem right? I think that's a fair uh, way to assess what, what's happened in, over the last six years or so. Given that big difference between the minimum wage and what it actually takes to make ends meet, what do you think the proper policy response is here? Well, I think the legislature should certainly consider further wage increases beyond just the, the future annual adjustments for inflation. I mean, since the current law has reached the end of its prescribed increases, this is a great time to examine just how effective those increases have been and determine whether more are necessary. As I mentioned, we've seen real gains in recent years for workers in the lowest paying jobs in our state, which speaks to the vital role that a strong minimum wage policy can have. Those pay raises mean real world things for people. It means people being able to keep a roof over their heads. It means being able to put food on the table for their child. Those are really important things and should be priorities for our lawmakers. 
So given how difficult it is to make end, ends meet today, I think lawmakers absolutely should be looking at raising wages further and preferably to a true living wage. Well, thank you very much, Tyler. Thanks, Juan Carlos. And thank you for listening to Policy for the People. We will see you next time.